Welcome, welcome to the people who came today, the third day. We've been waiting for you. There's some things which I have not mentioned because uh, if I mentioned them on the first two days, many of you would not hear. So now I'll bring some of these things out today and also review for you um, some things we have been talking about. This session is uh, devoted to uh, practicing and realizing the bodhisattva samadhis. There are many kinds of samadhis. Uh, one of the basic definition of samadhi is to be collected, calm, open, undistracted, mentally one-pointed. So there are, uh, and the bodhisattva samadhis share that basic quality of samadhi. Someone asked me yesterday, are there signs of samadhi? And I said, well, yes, there's signs. Samadhi does have characteristics, which I just mentioned. So if you, if you, uh, if you see openness and relaxation in body and mind, uh, and uh, you know, flexibility and undistractedness, being able, being focused on whatever is happening with, with no agitation. Those are signs or characteristics of samadhi in general. And the, the kind of intense quality, which I mentioned, the mental one-pointedness, could be seen as, in samadhi, um, self and other are one point. They're not Two, they're not dual. Body and mind are one point. Awareness and objects of awareness are one point in samadhi. Uh, Bodhisattva samadhis could be seen as the samadhis practiced by bodhisattvas. The, the beings who have this, um, this wish and commitment to realize perfect understanding for the welfare of all beings. 
when those beings enter into this kind of samadhi, their vow goes with them. So in that sense, the bodhisattva samadhi, or what I would call zazen, I consider the zazen that I'm recommending and encouraging is bodhisattva samadhi. And that bodhisattva samadhi, that zazen, is a vow. It's a open, relaxed, buoyant, undistracted vow to gather the entire ocean of Buddha's teachings for the welfare of all beings. And it's the vow, and then it's, it's the vow to assemble all this great teaching for the welfare of beings, and it's, taking, it's also taking care of that vow. But again, in samadhi, samadhi does take care of whatever is there. Samadhi is the vow, you're undistracted from that vow in samadhi. In that samadhi, you're open to whatever, and whatever comes doesn't knock you off from that samadhi. I mean, from the samadhi, but also from that vow. So many of us uh, have vows, and we really do feel that vow, but we experience getting distracted from it. We forget it. Not all of you have heard this story. How many of you have heard this story? Tell me after I tell this story, if you've heard it, raise your hand. (laughs) The story is, when I was 12 years old, I was enjoying being a juvenile delinquent. And at that time, I was a boy. And uh, I sort of knew I could be a juvenile delinquent and not get in much trouble being so young. And there was a man who lived in my apartment building who was, I think he was about 40 years old, or maybe a little older. And he had two daughters. And uh, my parents had separated, so I was living with my mother, and I, I think he really wanted a son. So he really, he was very, very nice to me. He wanted to help me. So after I got in trouble, uh, after I went to jail at 12 years old, he came to see me, and he told me that when he was a young person, he also was a a wild boy. And I didn't feel he was like talking down to me and saying, you're a, you're a bad boy. He's, he's more saying like, I've been there, done that. I was like you. And again, when he told me his stories, I thought, yeah, you were. <laughs> he was also 
1946 National Heavyweight Golden Gloves Champion. I saw the trophy on his bookcase. So he was, he, he was in a way, what people call a bad dude. And uh, this big guy, he was 6'4", at that time, and about 240 pounds, he said to me, you know, it's easy to be bad. What's hard is to be good. And at that time, I thought, oh yeah? Okay, I'll do it. I'll do the hard thing. And I, already, I knew already that being bad was easy. It takes a little guts, but So the vow arose in me to do good. I didn't know what it was, but I, I wanted to do it. But I forgot. Kept forgetting. I, wa- I didn't have samadhi. I didn't know I had samadhi. I didn't know how to take care of it. And then about a year later, I had another similar experience where I was really feeling uncomfortable it was, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was in my room, and this thought arose in me that all my problems would pretty much be pacified if I would just go to school and focus on being kind to the other kids rather than go to school being focused on you know, the other kids being kind to me, being focused on the girls liking me, stuff like that. And so I kind of, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to school tomorrow and, and do that. And I actually walked to school intending to do it, and, I, and then I opened the door of the school, and when I saw all the girls, I forgot about it. <laughs> I was distracted by their gorgeous faces. And, and uh, great vital energy. And things went on like that until I finally got the idea that actually, in order to work on being the way I wanted to be, I needed some training. And I didn't know the word samadhi at the time, but in fact, the training that I thought would be helpful was called zazen. Because the people who, when I heard about certain people, the people who seemed to be able to remember to be devoted to practicing kindness towards others, they were people who trained in samadhi. They had a, a samadhi training program that they all went through. So I started to try to practice samadhi. And, and that was, although I felt good about it, it was hard to do it on a regular basis. So then... I thought maybe if I went someplace like this, um, and at that time there was about one place to go, so I went to San Francisco to a place where people were practicing bodhisattva samadhi or other kinds of samadhi too, because maybe they hadn't heard about bodhisattva samadhi. But people were trying to develop samadhi, 
at the San Francisco Zen Center, and I went there because I thought I could be more regular if I practiced there, and I could be. And I've been regular ever since. (laughs) With the help of all beings, which is the only way, really. And the Bodhisattva Samadhi focuses on the way of practicing samadhi with the help of all beings and for the sake of all beings. That's the Bodhisattva Samadhi. That's words about the Bodhisattva Samadhi. So, again, samadhi can be described as a state And I recently, not so recently, 14 years ago, I read an article. And the name of the article was Samadhi, colon, Statement or State? I think I, I had been thinking about Samadhi mostly as a state. And it is kind of a state. It's a state of awareness in which you can focus on some vow undistractedly and also in a flexible, non-self-righteous, open way. So it's not just being focused, it's also being flexible. It's a state. And in that state, um, which is very important for the Bodhisattva path, Visions can arise, like visions of the Bodhisattva path, and visions of meeting Buddha face to face, and visions of how much you want to practice, how true it is. Revelations of teachings can appear in in these samadhis, that have never been seen before in human history. So the Mahayana movement partly is based on some samadhis in which practitioners saw new dimensions or new implications and new interpretations of the Buddha's teaching given earlier, finding new meanings in the ancient Buddhist teaching. And these things seem to arise in these concentrated states. In samadhi, you can still see the face of people, but they look different. You can still see the teachings, but they look different. Some people might say they're clearer, or some people might say they're transparent. Anyway, you, you learn the teachings when you're not in samadhi, and then in samadhi, the teachings arise again, but now they look, you can see them in a new, and you could say, and more deep and penetrating way. That's the state kind of aspect of samadhi. But samadhi is also a statement. So I just wrote down, where did I write it? I wrote... Yeah, here it is. 
I sit here before all beings, or in, in front of all beings, or in front of all you. I sit here, and I vow. I sit here and vow. When I sit here with you, I'm sitting here, <laughs> vowing. I'm sitting and vowing. I don't usually say it out loud during the meditation periods, so I I vow in silence, and I vow in stillness. Or you could say, in stillness, I vow. There's a vow living in stillness. Uh, I earnestly vow. I earnestly assert what I think is important. But it's, it's not just a vow. It's also a thought experiment. So here's an example of my vow, or, or the vow that arises. I'm sitting and I vow that everyone in the great assembly will remember the Bodhisattva Samadhi. I wish for that. My sitting, my sitting and, and my walking, but let's just say my sitting in, the front, in front of all beings, with all beings, is a vow all beings will remember samadhi, the bodhisattva samadhi, will remember the stillness of the bodhisattva samadhi. I vow that they will remember it, and I vow that they will receive it. It's already been given to them. Every moment it's been given, the samadhi is giving itself to us every moment. I vow that all of us will receive it. And I vow that I wish that all of us will practice it. And I vow and I wish that all of us will transmit it. And the way you transmit it is to sit and vow. That people will remember it, and so on. That's samadhi as a statement. My sitting in samadhi is a statement. The statement is, I wish everybody would practice the bodhisattva samadhi. Would practice the mind that is undistracted about the bodhisattva path. And I also said this earlier, I'll say it again. Buddhas and bodhisattvas
I'll say it, I'll say it like, again differently. To be Buddhas and Bodhisattvas is the Bodhisattva Samadhi. Again, I, at sometimes in my life I think, oh, Buddhas are one thing, and the Bodhisattva Samadhis or the Buddha Samadhis are another, and the Buddhas practice Bodhisattva Samadhis, which is true, but also it's true. The Buddhas are the Bodhisattva Samadhis. That's what they are. They're Samadhi people. So, Samadhi can be a statement that I wish that we will be Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, which means that we will be the Samadhi. I wish that we will be Zazen. It's okay to say, I wish we would do Zazen, but it's a little bit more to the point to say, I wish we would be Zazen. I wish we would be stillness. So, I think it's not one or the other. It's both a state and it is an bodhisattva. In, in some cases, people are, are not making a statement by their samadhi. They don't feel like, I'm sitting here and I'm asserting the bodhisattva vow. I'm just sitting here to be calm and relaxed and wholesome. Maybe that's their statement. The Mahayana Bodhisattva Samadhi is asserting the Buddha vow. The vow to be Buddha to help this world. And another thing which I'd like to review is that the chant we'll do in an hour or so or an hour or less, is called the Precious Mirror Samadhi. So there's many names for Zazen in our tradition. Precious Mirror Samadhi, which is given to us by one of our Zen ancestors. Um, self-receiving and employing Samadhi, which is the name of the Buddha's Samadhi under the Bodhi tree. Ocean Seal Samadhi, which is the samadhi of, uh, of the Buddha in the Avatamsaka Sutra. Lotus Samadhi, which is the name of the samadhi of the Lotus Sutra. Heart Sutra Samadhi, which is the name of the Buddha's samadhi in the Heart Sutra. There are hundreds of names for Zazen, all these different samadhis. And many sutras are seen as samadhis. The sutra is a samadhi. The samadhi is a samadhi of that scripture. And zazen is a nickname for all of them. So, in, there's a song about the precious mirror samadhi, which we've been singing. And it starts out, Teaching of suchness. Actually, it says teaching of thusness. The teaching of the way things are. And then it says, has been, 
intimately communicated by Buddhas and ancestors. And I agree with that. In the conventional world, Buddhas and ancestors have been transmitting this teaching of suchness. And the teaching of suchness is for bodhisattvas. Teaching of suchness is not necessarily for everybody. It's for, it's for the people who want to re- who realize Buddhahood for the welfare of the world. It's a teaching for them, the teaching of suchness. Bodhisattvas in their samadhis, bodhisattvas are meditating on suchness. The teaching of suchness is for bodhisattvas. Buddhas have been transmitting it intimately. But what I'm suggesting is when I look at the Chinese, it looks like teaching of suchness, intimate communion, Buddhas and ancestors. It looks like the same thing said three times. Teaching of suchness, intimate communion, Buddhas and ancestors. Buddhas and ancestors are intimate communion. When you are in intimate communion, you are in Buddha. So, and it's also true that Buddhas intimately communicate the teaching. But really, Buddhas are nothing but the teaching, and the teaching is nothing but Buddhas. And Buddhas are nothing but the intimate communion among all beings. And all that, and each of those things, is the samadhi. The samadhi, Buddhas are the samadhi, Buddhas are the teaching, Buddhas are the intimate communion. And I also mentioned yesterday that in the second song, the song we sing at evening service, it says that in one moment of zazen, in each moment of zazen, in every moment of zazen, in each moment of this bodhisattva samadhi, is equally the same practice as you and all beings. And it's equally the same enlightenment as you and all beings. When you're in this zazen, when you're in this samadhi, the samadhi is equally your practice, you're equally the same practice that you're doing and the same practice that all of us are doing. That's the samadhi. The samadhi is the way you pervade all beings and the way all beings pervade you, which is the intimacy. The samadhi is the way your consciousness impacts all consciousnesses and the way all consciousnesses impact you. And the way things are is my consciousness does impact all you and all of you, all of your consciousnesses do impact my consciousness. That is the bodhisattva teaching. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense for me to enter a samadhi 
and be at peace and be free and you not. Because if I really am free, my freedom pervades you, your consciousness. And if you're not free, then your not freedom is pervading my consciousness. So the reality of our relationship is such that I cannot be at peace unless you come along with it. (laughs) But fortunately you do come along with it, so I can be at peace. Thank you. And then you say, no, I don't. And then I practice with that. Because your practice is my practice. And if I say it's that, you practice with me. This, uh, the story which I have been waiting to tell, I will now tell. And I will try to tell the story with no comment, because it's kind of a long story. And if I if I start commenting, you you probably won't understand what the story is. So I'll try not to comment. <laughs> it will be difficult. It will be difficult for me not to comment. You maybe see me <laughs> restraining comments because. When I tell this story, I do have a lot of comments. It's, it's a comment-provoking story. And also, when you listen to it, you might have some comments, too. But please, wait till the story's over. <laughs> this story is one of the stories in the Lotus Sutra, which is um, highly appreciated in the tradition coming from the person named Ehe Dogen Zenji. Or in this chant we just did, Ehe Koso, which means the lofty priest Koso, the lofty ancestor Ehe. Ehe Dogen, our ancestor, our founder in Japan. For him, the Lo- he grew up with the Lotus Sutra. It's very important to him. And uh, in China, they have ten names of Buddha which they recite in the Mahayana. And in Soto Zen, we have ten names of Buddha which we recite in our Mahayana. But actually, we have eleven. Dogen Zenji added the Lotus Sutra to the list of Buddhas. The Lotus Sutra is a Buddha. And also, there's also Mahaprajnaparamita, which is a Buddha. Anyway, the Lotus Sutra has this story, and this is one of the stories about the Bodhisattva path, which, again, not tell it, but don't comment. So once upon a time, and I'm not going to read it, so it's not going to be a quote from the sutra. I can't read it, because if I read it, I'll lose contact with you. So I'm going to say it to you. 
And you can look in the Lotus Sutra, chapter 4 if you want to, and read the story more literally. So there was a, there was a, a person. Usually they say there was a man who was the son of a father and mother. Anyway, there was a person, and he lived with his family, and he wandered away from his family. He went out on a walk, and he just kept wandering and wandering, and after a while, he really didn't know how to get home. And the longer he wandered, the more destitute and poor and needy he became. The longer he wandered away from his home. While he was wandering, his father went looking for him. looking for his boy or his girl. And he looked for a long time and couldn't find him and felt really bad. And during this time when he was separated from his son and his son was separated from him, he became... extremely wealthy. Like almost inconceivably wealthy. All the while yearning and and all the while even more yearning that his child would come back so he could transmit these treasures to his successor, to his heir. And then, after 50 years, (laughs) the, the lost child, by chance, went to the town where his father was living. And by chance, it seems, walked near his father's palace. And his father was sitting um, out on the porch of the palace. And uh, there were like, it seemed like stairways going up to the porch. And the father was sitting on a lion throne. And the lion throne had jeweled pedestals which are in the song we will chant at noon service. Jewel pedestals. And the father had fine clothing and uh, strings of pearls worth hundreds of millions of something. And the poor lost child looked at this person there and he thought, this is not a place for me. I should get out of here. If these people see me, they may, they may apprehend me 
and put me into forced labor. So he ran away. At the same time, the great person up on the lion throne with the jewel pedestals sees his child and is so happy. My boy is back, my son. So he sends his son, one, I guess, or two of his servants after him, and they catch up with him. And they, you could say, take hold of him to bring him to his father. He, however, is terrified of these powerful, uh, powerful, well-dressed messengers. And he gets angry and, you know, and defensive. He, thinks he gets, gets defensive and, and aggressive and starts yelling at them. He said, I didn't do anything wrong. Get away from me. Leave me alone. And uh, so they hold on to him a little bit more firmly. And then he passes out in fear. The father, seeing this, gets the idea and says, oh, I see. How sad. So he calls to his servants and says, sprinkle water on him and let him go. So they do sprinkle water on him. And he comes to, and they say, you can go. And he runs away. And he's very happy to get away. Then the father gets an idea. An idea of a way to get close to his boy. He wants to be... Comment, stop. Uh, he sees a way to get close to his boy. So he sends, he sends some other st- servants dressed in rags and covered with dirt to go to him and offer him work. And so he says, and they say, what work should we offer? And he said, tell him, uh, tell him that you have work, you have a job of shoveling dung. Everybody know what dung is? Good. <laughs> so they offer him this job, and he he asks for he gets an advance payment, and goes to work. And he's very happy to get this job. And they work with him. These servants. And he gets he gets what he needs to to live. He's he's happy to get him a job now. But he, he still doesn't feel like he could, you know, go and hang out with the people of that house. He's still kind of like, I don't want to be up there with that guy. He still thinks he doesn't belong in his own house that he wandered away from. He thinks he's unworthy. It's just too much. Too much. It's ridiculous. It's too grandiose for me. I'm commenting, sorry. Anyway, (laughs) then a while later, on another day, the father looks at his son and sees his son. He looks at his son through a window. Oh, my boy. 
He's work, he sees him working hard. So then he gets another idea. He puts on, he takes off his fine stuff and takes his feet off the jeweled pedestals and puts on dirty clothes and puts dirt on himself and goes down and uh, to the work area. And he, uh, he kind of presents himself as the boss of the dung shoveling crew. <laughs> and he actually carries a dung shovel with him. And he says, yeah, you guys work hard. Come on. And then he says to his son, hey, my man. What one translation? Hey, my man, <laughs> you're doing a really good job here. He said, and if you need anything, let me know. I'll, I'll give you, you know, if you need more wages or, you know, you need some oil or some sugar or some salt, let me know. You're doing a good job. Matter of fact, you can kind of think of me as your father. And uh, the lost son says, great, thank you. And he can think of this guy kind of as his father. And he goes on like this in this story for 20 years. So he's been lost for 50. (laughs) And now he's working for 20. And after 20 years, he has more confidence. And so now the, the father comes out of the house dressed in his regular outfit, and he's not terrified of him anymore. He still can't believe that he... He's in the family of that, that he's actually a family member of that household. But he can at least like stand to be near the father. And then the father says, you know, I'd like you to come up to the house sometime and learn about how we do things. And he can actually now accept the invitation and dare to go into the house and like take responsibility for the very valuable activities going on there and learn you know, and be mindful of the practice of the house. And so he does that for quite a while. And then the father feels like, well, actually, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm getting kind of old. <laughs> now the father must be over 100. And he says, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. And uh, actually, I'd like you to gather all the, you know, great people of the land to come to the palace and I have an announcement. So the son gathers everyone and when they all arrive, he says, I want to announce to you that this is my son. It's not just like he's my son. This is my son. My, my blood son. And he is going to take care of all this all this. And the son is very happy to hear. Not only is he being treated like a son, he is the son. That's the story of the Bodhisattva path. Or one of them. Now, the rest of my life is a comment on that. and um, a practice of that. So part of our life is that we are born into Buddha's, we're born in Buddha's heart. That's where we're actually, actually where we're living. 
is in where where we actually live is where we are intimately communicating with everybody. That's the way we actually are living. Where we are actually receiving support from the whole universe to be what we are, and where what we are supports the whole universe. And now we've heard that actually the universe is expanding. Each one of us is supporting an expanding universe. And if it starts contracting, we're going to be supporting that moment by moment. That's, That's our actual life. That's how we came to be. By the kindness of all beings, we came to be. But also we supported all beings. And we always have been and we always will. But when we're little people, we don't understand that. We kind of know that our mother and father are supporting us. But sometimes not too much. But we don't, uh, and we kind of know that we're supporting them, but not very clearly. But in fact, we are. When little babies support the whole world, it's hard for people to accept. But little babies pervade all things, and all things pervade little babies. That's, I would say, a statement of suchness. But the babies don't understand it. They get a feeling for it, like babies actually have grandiose ideas sometimes, like they think they can fix their whole family. But it's not that they can fix their whole family, it's that they pervade their whole family, that their whole family depends on them. It's not a matter of fixing, it's a matter of realizing suchness. When we realize suchness, that will relieve all suffering. But if we think we can fix them, that's missing that they're supporting us. So babies go from terror that they can't do anything, that they have no power, to thinking that they can fix all their family problems. This is not a clear understanding of the situation. They are living in suchness, but they don't get it. And I, by the way, did anybody hear that story about me and that guy who said it's easy to be good, I mean, easy to be bad? Anybody hear that story before? One? Not so many people heard it. Okay, good. Here's another story. I wonder how many have heard this one. When my daughter became a mother, not when she was pregnant, but when she became a mother, and she saw her little boy, she loved him uh, more than she ever knew anything about love before. And then she called her parents and said, now I realize how much you love me. She didn't understand before. She heard us say it, and she could tell we were kind of like 
making some effort to be kind to her. <laughs> she kind of could sense it. And we did say we loved her, and she didn't say, no, you don't. Or even sometimes she would say, I know you do. But when she had her own baby, she thought, oh, my God, now I know what they meant. And I had the same feeling when she was born, when I saw her come up out of her mother. I thought, oh, that's what they mean. That's what my dad meant. I get it. It's a whole new variety of love. Of course, we love our spouse, and we love our brothers and sisters, and we love our mother. But then there's this other thing of the way they love us, which we don't know when we're little people, and then we do know when we're big people. We, whoa, I never, this is a new thing. So the babies do not know. Anyway, they know what to do. Go away from it. The babies don't know the samadhi. So what do they do? They walk away from it. When we're first born in it, we don't understand the samadhi. We have to walk away from it. Assert ourselves. We have to do it. I got to get away from this in order to understand it. When my brother was about to go to college, I said, you don't have to go to college. You know, it's not necessary. And he said, I think I'm going to go to find, so I can find that out for myself. <laughs> and he did go, and things worked out. And he did find out he didn't have to go to college. <laughs> but he had to do it for himself. You're, you're in the Bodhisattva Samadhi, darling. Yeah, I know. But I have to leave. Bye-bye. And so we wander away. And the longer we run, wander away, before we come back to the samadhi, the worse things get. And this story says, we're going to wander back and run into it again. It's going to happen. It may take 50 years, it may, and that's how long is 50 years? I don't know. Anyway, we may have to get really poor and really needy before we wander back to our own home. The samadhi of the Buddhas, the zazen which we were born in that we went away from. The bodhisattva vow that we were born in that, that gave us life and that we gave to life. We have to wander away. And most of us have. So we kind of got that part down. And when we get back home, there's a possibility that it will look scary, that will look too ritzy. That we will feel unworthy. And if, and if our parents come to give us gifts, we may feel, whoa, like, okay, that's a nice gift, but then what do I have to do? Am I like, well, is this actually a trick to get me into the oven? You know, is this a gingerbread lady? Gingerbread baker? Is she trying to, are, they, are these people going to trap me into some kind of a cult? This is, Soto Zen is a cult. It's a, it's a cult of the samadhi. It's a cult of zazen. We worship this samadhi. Sorry, I bow to the teaching of suchness. I bow to the, I bow to the intimate communion. I worship it. 
I bow to it. It's the most wonderful thing in the universe. It's reality. It is a cult. So when you first see it, you feel like, whoa, maybe. Maybe not. It also says in the song, which we're going to do quite soon, it says, because there is the base, there are jewel pedestals and fine clothing. Uh, base also means mean or poor. Because there's, there's the degraded, there's jewel pedestals and fine clothing. The teaching of suchness isn't, isn't ritzy, and it isn't impoverished. It's just inconceivably wonderful. And it can look really simple, and it can look really frugal. It can look any old way. It depends on who's looking at it. But if you wandered away from a long time, it might look really precious. And somebody said to me, why do we call it the precious mirror? Why is this precious stuff? And I think that person asked me that because that person doesn't want to deal with precious, which means she doesn't want to deal with she thinks she's not precious, which she, does, which she did think about herself. So since she feels unprecious, she doesn't want to be anywhere near anything precious or people who talk about precious. How about take the word precious of the mirror samadhi? What does mirror mean? Mirror means the entire universe is your reflection. And you are the reflection for the, you are the reflection for the entire universe. So now maybe we've got back home and we we're either ready to go into the house or not. And pr- probably not. So we have a job still being offered of dung shoveling. <laughs> which means shoveling everything that's coming to you. It means shoveling fear, confusion, insult, being insulted, and feeling terrible that you insulted somebody else. It means shoveling, feeling disrespectful of somebody, and feeling somebody disrespectful of you. It's shoveling pain and pleasure. It's shoveling wanting things to be under control. <laughs> like I said, I, 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 at the beginning I quoted this car ad, which said, the ultimate experience of power is control. Dung shoveling is not getting things under control. Dung shoveling is shoveling the wish to control things. Be, com- be compassionate to the wish to control. And then be compassionate to the fear, which is at the base of the wish to control. Love is not about control. Power is about it. And power, to use power to control, is the ultimate experience of fear. (laughs) So I have many examples from my own life where I was afraid and tried to control. I 
was afraid of something happening, so then I tried to control. And, and in some of the cases, I saw how really that's not really what I wanted to do, that it was really ugly, especially once I finally got in control. When I was my, in my, one of my first practice periods at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, I, <coughs> I didn't really feel like I was afraid, but I tried to control myself into samadhi. And I was really quite fascist about it and threatening to myself. I threatened myself into not being distracted. But I had not yet heard about samadhi being relaxed and generous and careful and patient. I just went right to being concentrated and threatened myself into concentration. I guess I was a little afraid of being not concentrated because I was in a place of concentration and I wanted to be concentrated. I wasn't aware that I was afraid of not being concentrated, but now that I'm telling you that I think I, think I was a little afraid of being a Zen monk and, and an, an unconcentrated Zen monk is kind of like a disgrace, right? If I'm not a Zen monk, I don't mind being totally distracted. <laughs> but if I'm a Zen monk, I really should be concentrated. So maybe I should get concentrated and maybe I'm afraid of not being concentrated, so I'm going to be really aggressive about it. And I was and I got myself under control. And I developed various checks to make sure that I was not distracted. But I was not relaxed and open and buoyant in body and mind. I was tense and tight, and I got myself focused. And when I got there, I said, "Uh uh-huh, I got it. And this is not what I came for. This is not what I came to this monastery for. This is not a good state. I'm not, and I'm, you know, I'm not distracted, but I'm, I'm mean. I'm mean to me. So I stopped that kind of practice and have not been doing it since. And it was good that I stopped, I think, because I'm still here. Some other people did that, and they quit. Because they did it, and they kept doing it. And they just got themselves into a mean place. Samadhi's not a mean place. It's a, it's a place based on generosity. So if, you, when, if you're in the dung-shoveling phase, then it's to be generous with the dung, to welcome the dung, to not try to like get rid of the dung. Shovel it, but shovel it over into another nice place. Or even shovel it into a better place. Give it a better home than it has. Come on, dung, we're going to go over here. Give the dung compassion. And then be careful with the dung, you know, that you don't put it in somebody, shovel it into somebody's mouth. (laughs) And don't hit yourself with the shovel. Be careful. Don't look down on the dung. Don't, don't say nasty things about the dung. Don't think you're better than dung. Don't be possessive of the dung. Don't try to get rid of the dung. These are the bodhisattva <laughs> training methods of the precepts. 
But the first precept is generosity. Welcome the dung. Say thank you for a dung shoveling job. Great, thank you. And then be careful of the dung and be patient with the dung. All that, we just we moved, we, we shoveled all the dung. Oh, thank you. Look over there. See that mountain? <laughs> oh, thank you. More work, thank you. And then be diligent and keep going back to your enthusiasm for dung shoveling, for taking care of all difficulties, to replenish your energy. And then you're ready to enter into samadhi with the dung. It isn't you get rid of the dung and then you enter samadhi. You open to, now you can open to the dung and relax with it. Now you can relax with it and be at ease with it and being undistracted without even forcing yourself to pay attention to it. So now, here we are, with the dung, undistracted, at ease. Flexible in body and mind. So now we're ready to play with the dung. I heard from my mother when that when I was a little boy, I played with my own dung and threw it around the room. <laughs> Once we're in samadhi with the dung, we can start playing with it. And when you start play, uh, by playing with it, you understand what the dung is, right? You start playing with it, then you enter into being creative with it. And then once you're creative with it, you will understand it. You'll understand that this dung pervades the entire universe, and the entire universe pervades this dung. And you, the dung shoveler, pervade the entire universe, and the entire universe pervades the dung shoveler. Now you're in samadhi. You're not trying to be anything other than a samadhi shoveler. And you're not, and the dung is nothing but the dung. And the dung being nothing but the dung is the dung being pervaded by the whole universe that makes it just like that. And the whole universe is the way it is because the dung makes it the way it is. Then you understand. And then there's liberation of all beings. That's the comment, some comments on the story. And then the next part of the comments on the story are going up into the house and learning how the house works. And I'll just tell you briefly that in the house, there's further teachings on dung shoveling, which look not like dung. They look like precious jewel samadhis and stuff like that. But I think that's enough for now. From That's enough... I think that's enough. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.